All right, you guys can turn to Romans chapter 5. That's where we are this morning, Romans 5. Let me give you just a quick review as we jump back into Romans. Kind of reorient you to where we are. The book of Romans, it's all about God's righteousness. That's the big idea. God is righteous, he is right, in all he is and in all he does. And Paul began the book of Romans by focusing on God's righteousness in judgment. God is righteous in judgment, and that's all in all pretty bad news for us, because we're not righteous. We are sinners, and as a result, God must in righteousness condemn us. We all, all human beings, are worthy of the wrath of God. That's the bad news. The good news is God is also righteous in justification. That's the portion of the letter that we've been in for the last few weeks. We've been looking at this gift of justification that God in righteousness shares with us. And we defined it this way, justification, it's to be declared righteous by God based on the faithfulness of Christ. That's what Paul means by the word in the book of Romans. Because of the faithfulness of Christ, not by our faithfulness, not by our good works, but by his good work on the cross, God offers us the gift of righteousness, this right standing in his sight. It comes to all who believe. That's all that's required of us, simply faith, simply trust that Jesus did indeed die on our behalf as a sacrifice for our sin and then rise from the dead. The moment you believe that, you are justified and justification brings some great things into your life. That was the subject of the last passage we looked at. The first half of chapter five, justification brings into your life eternal and unconquerable peace and hope. Peace and hope, they are yours forever because you've been justified. Now, in this last passage that we're going to look at today, it's the end of this section on justification, Paul wants to step back for a moment and ask the question, how? How is it that Jesus' righteousness on the cross has come to count for us? We weren't righteous. We were not faithful. So how is it that we benefit from the faithfulness of Jesus Christ? Paul's going to look at the mechanics of the thing. How does this work that we should benefit from the faithfulness of Christ? And Paul is going to draw it together and point us to an answer that can be summarized in one word. One word answer. How is it that we benefit from Christ's faithfulness? The answer is representation. Representation. That means that someone stands in for you. That someone speaks and acts on your behalf. Representation is a huge concept theologically, but it's also pretty common to your daily life. Representation is all around us. Let me give you a few examples. Representation, really common. Uh, We live in a representative government. Representative nation. We have representative democracy. You vote for politicians who represent you. Now, hopefully they represent you by making decisions that you like. That's what we hope will happen, but sometimes it doesn't, and when it doesn't, we get frustrated, and we think to ourselves, well, I didn't vote for that guy, but it doesn't matter because he's your representative. You have to live with the decisions that he makes. That's representation. He represents you. Uh, Another example, uh, lawyers. My brother is actually a lawyer. He's a very good lawyer. Lawyers are representative. They represent clients before the law. Now, my brother's a very good lawyer. Clients seek him out because my brother is super reliable. They can count on him. That's really important in a representative. Uh, I heard once about a young lawyer who was not quite so reliable. Under the pressure and strain of practicing law, this guy had a nutty. And and he went off the deep end for like days. They couldn't get hold of him. He was gone, didn't come to the office, couldn't reach him on the phone or by email or by text message. 
Now, that was bad for him. He got fired because of that. But it was also really bad for his clients, really bad for the people he represented. Because while he's off having a nutty, their court dates come. And they go before the judge, and the judge says to them, well, you should have picked a better lawyer. They don't get any grace. There's no leniency. They are stuck with the consequences of the failure of their representative. That's how representation works. A third example, um, you actually saw representation at work yesterday. Those of you who went to the Aggie game. Football is representation. The Aggies carry our emotions and our hopes on the field for us. That's why we say when the Aggies score, we score. Yesterday was a very good game to bring a date to. Lots of scoring going on. Okay, now, when the Aggies score and we celebrate, we're not celebrating because we did something great. We're not the ones running the ball. We're not the ones blocking the defenders. We celebrate because that team of men represent us. When they do well, we celebrate. When they do poorly, we grieve because they're our representatives. That's how representation works. And representation is the key. It is the basis for both condemnation and justification. Now, right this moment, right now, you could take the entire human race, all seven billion of us, and you could divide us into two groups, those who are condemned and those who are justified. Those who are condemned, those who are unrighteous in God's sight, that's one group, and those who are justified, those who are righteous in God's sight. Every human being belongs to one of those two groups, and the group that you belong to depends entirely on who your representative is. The entire human race is represented by one of two men. And the man that you choose to be represented by determines whether you're part of the justified or part of the condemned. That's what Paul is going to look at in our passage this morning. So look at Romans chapter 5. Paul is going to begin by looking at who our representative is by default, by birth. Who the representative is that we are born with. That's Adam. Adam is our representative by default. Look with me at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, dot, dot, dot. This passage is actually really complex. It's been one of the harder ones I've ever tried to put a sermon together for because Paul does something really weird grammatically here. He begins an analogy. Notice that just as. Just as. He's going to compare the first representative with the second representative. So he starts talking about the first one, that is Adam, and then he gets sidetracked. And Paul ends up spending the whole first half of the passage just looking at Adam. He doesn't complete the analogy until all the way down in verse 18. So it's kind of a complex passage to look at, but the the truths that Paul is bringing out here are, are not quite as complex. They're really quite clear. What Paul is doing here is he's pointing our attention. He's directing us to look at our representative by default, a man named Adam. And Paul in particular wants us to look at one moment in Adam's life. One moment. The moment that he introduced humanity to sin. Now, I want to look at that moment this morning. So if you'll leave your finger in Romans, I want you to turn back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. I want to go through the details some with you this morning of this moment in which Adam freely chose to introduce the human race to sin. I want us to look at the details. While you're turning to to Genesis chapter 2, let me refresh the the details of Genesis chapter 1 with you. Genesis chapter 1, God creates. 
God brings order and life to the world. And at the end of Genesis chapter one, after creating all life, including Adam and Eve, the pinnacle of creation, God looks over his world and assesses it all. He says it is all very good. End of Genesis one, everything is very good. The world is perfect. Life is just what you want it to be. Everything is right. Everything is magnificent. And then we enter into Genesis chapter two and we begin to look at God's relationship with these two people, with Adam and Eve. We see what he does with them, how he blesses them. Look with me, starting in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So let's set up the context here. Uh, God has this man and this woman, and he plants them in a garden, and everywhere they look, as far as the eye can see, there is nothing but grace for them, nothing but goodness for them. It is paradise to to enjoy the, the fruit of the vine. All they have to do is reach up and grab food. They're never in want for food. They're never in want for anything. God provides richly for them. There is innumerable blessings in the garden and one command, just one command, one tree in the midst of millions, billions perhaps of trees, one tree that you can't eat from. If you eat from that tree, you will surely die. So just one command. Now Adam and Eve face a choice. Will they enjoy God's infinite blessings or will they choose to disobey the one command? Now, you know how it works out. Let's look at Genesis chapter three. In the midst of that choice, Satan shows up. In the form of a serpent, he comes and he tempts Eve. It's very interesting. Adam is not off in another part of the garden. When you look at the Hebrew, Adam's actually standing next to Eve, but he chooses to just be passive. He's going to see how this whole thing plays out. So Satan shows up and begins to tempt Eve. And look at how he tempts Eve. Look at verse four of chapter three. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the the, the particulars here of Satan's temptation. First of all, he goes after Eve's belief. Did God really say that you would die? I doubt it. Really doubt that. I doubt that you should take God at his word. And then the next verse, he goes after Eve's pride. You should take that fruit because if you eat from that fruit, you will be like God. It's interesting, that's the same thing that Satan does to us. That's the root of all sin, disbelief and pride. That is always how Satan goes after God's people. He goes after her belief in God and after her pride. And you know what happens. Eve takes the bait. She buys in, she grabs the apple, she eats it, she hands it to Adam, and he does the same. He chooses to sin, and his sin brings consequences immediately into his life. The consequences begin to befall immediately. Now, that shouldn't have been a surprise to him. Remember, back what we were looking at in verse 17, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what's going to happen to you? You're going to surely die. Now, actually, in Hebrew, it's literally, you shall die, die. That's how you emphasize something in Hebrew is you just repeat it. So what God was saying to Adam is, you're not just going to die. You're going to die, die. You're going to really die. You're going to over the top die if you eat from this tree. Well, that is indeed what happens. God shows up and the consequences begin to come in Adam's life and they are die, die kind of consequences. Uh, Look with me, chapter three. God begins to level the consequences upon Adam and Eve. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. 
In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, now what are the consequences? What does it mean to die, die for Adam and Eve? Well, first it means physical death. From dust, you will return to dust. They are going to physically die. Now, that doesn't come immediately. They don't fall over dead on the spot. But death enters the human race at that moment. Their bodies begin to degenerate. This is the moment when decay enters the human genome, when their cellular structures begin to move inextricably towards death, unavoidably towards death. Humanity wasn't created to die. I don't know if you realize that. We were created to be immortals. We were created to experience nothing but life for all of eternity. That was God's design. It's interesting, if you, if you read Genesis chapter 1, uh, what you won't see in Genesis 1 are the words cancer or heart disease or genetic ailments. None of that stuff existed in God's creation until they sinned. And then decay entered the human race. So Adam and Eve, the first part of this die-die consequence for them is physical death. But it's not just physical death that they experience. God also says your choice to sin brings curse upon your labor. Your labor is cursed. For the woman, her labor was giving birth to children. Now that will be accompanied by pain and danger. For Adam, his labor was to gather provisions for the family. Now that will be cursed. The ground will only yield begrudgingly food to you. So their labor is cursed. Notice it's interesting, students. Uh, Work is not part of the curse. Cursed work is part of the curse. Actually, you were designed to work. So when you hate work, just remember, it's not work that's bad. It's the fact that a curse is upon it. Work itself is good. Just a hint. Third, (laughs) cursed relationships. God brings a curse upon the marriage relationship. Adam and Eve were designed to enjoy harmony with one another for all time. Harmony in their roles. Adam is head, Eve is helper. That was supposed to be nothing but joy and peace between them. But at this point, that is broken. Now Eve desires her husband's place and Adam desires to dominate his wife. This is when tension enters the man-woman relationship. But it also enters the man-creation relationship. The world was designed to be at peace with us. No natural disasters, no famine, no suffering. But this, at this moment, creation is broken. And now humanity is at war with the world. We don't get along well with creation because of Adam's sin. So that's the third. And then finally, fourth and most serious consequence that come upon Adam and Eve, separation from God. Their sin brings separation from God. Now that happens immediately, instantly. As soon as they sin, that separation begins. Before they chose to eat of the apple, we're told that every single morning, God would take a walk in the garden with Adam in the cool of the day. It's pretty cool to think about. I don't know what God looked like to Adam. I don't know how he manifested himself to Adam, but Adam saw him and talked with him. Talk about a great quiet time. You get to walk and talk with God every day. Awesome quiet times for Adam that come to an end the moment he takes of the apple. What do Adam and Eve do right after the sin? We didn't read it. Do you know what they do? They go and hide. They try to clothe themselves and hide themselves from the sight of God. Instantly, shame and separation enter into humanity's relationship with God. And that continues. Right after the curse is leveled, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. 
They are removed from the presence of God in the garden. The garden is where God's presence dwells on earth. They can't be there anymore. That's because of necessity. Psalm 5, 4 tells us, you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. God is so holy and righteous, he cannot tolerate sin and evil in his presence. Adam and Eve freely chose sin. They freely chose the path of evil, and as a result, God cannot be next to them. He must kick them out of the garden. So for Adam and Eve, pretty serious consequences. Die, die really was bad. Very bad for Adam and Eve, but Paul wants us to understand it wasn't just bad for them, it was bad for us. Because of Adam's choice, that death, die, die, has spread to all of us. That was Paul's point. Chapter 5, verse 12. You can turn back to Romans. We're done with Genesis for now. Romans 5, look again at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Because of Adam's choice, death has spread to all of us. Now, what does Paul mean by death? When he uses that word, what is he talking about? He goes into a little more detail for us than Genesis 3. Let's flesh it out. What does Paul mean by death? Well, the death that we have inherited from Adam, it certainly includes physical death. If you look at the statistics of death among Adam's lineage, it's pretty overwhelming. 100%. Every one of us die. If Jesus does not return in our lifetimes, we will all follow that same statistic. We will all die. Physical death is unavoidable. It reminds me of a, of a story about a, an elderly man and woman, and, and the man was really sick, and so uh, his wife took him to the doctor. And she said, doctor, can you figure out what's wrong with my husband? And so the doctor begins to run tests on the husband, and, and he concludes from these tests, he comes to the wife and he says, uh, ma'am, your husband is, is really sick. He is gravely ill, and his illness is due to stress. Stress is just tearing him up. Now, one of the man's ailments was he couldn't hear well, and so he turns to his wife and he says, sweetie, what did the doctor say? And she says to him, well, well honey, you're, you're really sick. And then the doctor turns back to the woman and he says, because this ailment is stress-induced, what we need to do is re- reduce his stress. You, you need to, to, to look for things that will help him to be relaxed. You can cook him breakfast every morning and, and rub his back every evening. And if you guys are in, in a disagreement, give in to him. Do whatever you can do to make him feel good and, and relaxed. And the husband turns to the wife and says, uh, sweetie, what did the doctor say? And the wife turns to the husband and says, honey, I'm sorry, but you're gonna die. <laughs> well, Technically speaking, that's not what the doctor said, but the wife is right. He's going to die. We're all going to die because we've inherited death from Adam. It's unavoidable. All of Adam's descendants decay. All of Adam's descendants break down. We get sick and eventually we die. That is one of the unavoidable consequences of Adam's choice. But Paul wants us to understand as bad as physical death is, it's not the worst consequence that has come upon us as a race because of Adam's sin. Look down at verse 18. Just the first half of verse 18. Physical death is bad, but not as bad as this. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. We have inherited not just physical death, we have inherited from Adam condemnation. We are born into condemnation. That's an interesting word, biblically, condemnation. Uh, it means both the guilty verdict and the punishment that a judge might render on a, on a guilty person. To use modern lingo, it's, it's the verdict and the sentence. You are guilty and you're going to jail. That's condemnation. Now, when God declares humanity guilty, what is the punishment that follows? That's what we studied a number of weeks ago. It's not jail. It's something worth. It's called wrath. God's wrath is God's punishment of sin. 
God's wrath is God's anger in action against sin, and it is for this lifetime and for eternity. God's wrath is an eternal thing. It is his eternal punishment of sin. We have inherited that from Adam, not just guilt, but wrath from God because of Adam's choice. So we've inherited physical death, we've inherited condemnation, and now a third thing. Look with me at verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Many were made sinners. That's the third consequence that Paul lists for us from Adam's choice. We were made sinners. What Paul wants us to understand is that the moment that Adam ate from that apple, human nature was radically changed. Human nature turned 180 degrees the moment he ate of the apple. Think with me for a moment. What what was Adam's nature like? What was he like as a person? How might you describe him before he ate the apple? I'll I'll give you uh, my description. Here's how I would describe Adam. First of all, he was innocent. He was innocent. He'd never done anything to feel guilty about, to feel ashamed of. He'd done nothing but good all of his life. He was perfectly innocent in the eyes of God. Second, he was free to choose. Adam was truly free. He could choose to obey or choose to sin. There was nothing compelling him either way. He was truly and completely free before God, a free moral agent. Third, he was capable of good. Adam had it within himself to do that which pleased God. Adam could have chosen to do nothing but please God for all eternity. It was within his power to do so. Adam could truly please God. That's what was true before the fall. What about afterwards? What happened to Adam when he ate of the apple? What happened to his nature? What has happened to our nature? What is our nature compared to that? Well, uh, Ephesians chapter two, Paul gives us some helpful clarification here. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Let's go back to our chart. What has happened to us? Well, rather than innocent, because of Adam's fall, we are now all guilty. We are born guilty. That's what Paul means when he says children of wrath. From childhood on, we are under the wrath of God. We have done things and are things that we should be ashamed of. Uh, Second, rather than being free to choose, we are now enslaved to sin. That's what Paul means when he says we are dead in sins. Uh, That's just a fancy way of saying you are powerless against sin. You can do nothing but sin. From birth on, by your basic human nature, you freely choose to sin. Every day you can do nothing but freely choose to sin. You cannot choose to obey because you are a slave of sin. You are bent towards sin from the moment of your birth. And third, incapable of doing good. We cannot please God by human nature, by turning to what's inside of ourselves, my power, my strength, my abilities, I cannot ever please God. I do not have the capacity, the capability to do so. This is what Paul is trying to summarize when he says that by Adam's choice, we were made sinners. Paul wants us to understand the problem with us, the problem with the human race is not our sins, it's that we are sinners. The problem is not the bad things we do, it's the bad people we are at the core of our being. We do sins, we commit sins because we are sinners. These actions of sin that we feel so bad about, they're simply the the symptom, the result of the fact that on the inside, we're sinners. Now, I know that's not a, a popular thing to say in modern America. 
that humanity is basically bad at the core of our existence. From, from your earliest days in elementary school, you've been taught that, that boys and girls are basically good and that you just need education and love and care and nurture and you will unleash all the good within you. That's such a happy thing to say. It sounds so great and it is so untrue. <laughs> Biblically speaking, that is a lie. We are not basically good. We are basically evil. At the core of human nature, we are bent away from God and towards sin. Not because God designed it that way, but because Adam chose to sin. His sin has made sinners of all of us. Now, in theological speak, to use a theological phrase, we summarize that idea with the phrase total depravity. If you hear that phrase, hold a private, this is what we're talking about. This sin nature, this bent towards sin that we inherited from Adam, here's how I define it. Total depravity does not mean that humanity is as bad as they could possibly be. It means that every aspect of our human nature has been corrupted by the fall. Every part of you has been broken because of Adam's choice. Because he ate the apple, every part of your being is broken. Every part, your relationships, your intellect, your emotions, your conscience, your spirituality, your body, all of it is broken. All of it is enslaved to sin because of Adam's choice. When he sinned, it brought death to the human race. Die, die. That wasn't just true for Adam. It was true for all of us. Because of representation. Again, that's the big idea this morning. Representation. Adam represented us in the garden. As a result, we suffer the consequences of his choice. Now, you actually get a sense of that from Adam's name. I don't know if you knew that. Adam in Hebrew, it means man. That's who Adam was. The man. The first man. He represented all of us in his actions. Now, actually, Paul gives us a sense of of how this worked, how it is that, that Adam represented us. Look back at verse 12. The very end of verse 12, Paul says, death spread to all men because all sinned. Because all sinned. Paul's not talking about your sins. Because all sinned. He's not talking about the sins that you commit during your lifetime. That's not his point. Paul is saying here that we all die because all of us were with Adam in the garden. All of us were there. All of us sinned with Adam. As our representative, Adam had all of us inside of himself. Now that's actually, genetically speaking, true. He is our forefather. We were all within him. He carried us, our hopes, our life in him. And so as he sinned, we participated in it. We were there and so we faced the same consequences he did. Now, that's actually what Paul is trying to prove uh, in two very complicated verses, verses 13 and 14. Let's look at those for a moment. Paul wants to give us proof to show us that we die because we were with Adam. We sinned in Adam. Look at verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. What in the world is going on there? Well, Paul is looking at all the people who lived between Adam and between Moses. Okay, so from Adam to Moses, there was no law. Uh, unlike during Adam's lifetime, Adam had a law, a very simple law, don't eat that tree. Okay, so one law, but all the people from Adam until Moses, Moses gets the law from God, but between those guys, there's no law. Uh, And Paul's point is when there's no law, sin cannot be imputed. It's not that those people weren't sinning. They committed sins just like all of us do because we are sinners, and yet their sin cannot be charged to them. It's like if you had a big piece of land and you didn't want people trespassing on it. Well, you need to put up signs 
that you need to post signs that say no trespassing so that if they trespass, you can take them to court and charge them with that crime. You, you are able to pin the crime upon them if you have posted the signs. Well, Paul's point is between Adam and Moses, there were no signs posted. God hadn't put up the law. And so their sin was not charged to their account. But here's the funny thing. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Paul's point is even though their sin is not charged to their account because there's no law, despite that, they still die. Even though they don't have any law to disobey. Adam did. Adam had a choice that would bring the death penalty if he made the wrong choice. The people after him didn't have that choice, and yet they still died. They didn't do anything that had a death penalty against it, and yet they still died. All of them did. The only explanation for that is that they are being charged with Adam's sin. They were in Adam when he sinned. His choice affects all of them just as it affects all of us. Adam was our representative. We were with him in the garden, not conscious, but there. We sinned with him, and as a result, we suffer the consequences of his choice. Now, whenever you teach that, there's a question that immediately follows. How in the world can that be fair? How can it be fair to charge us with the consequences of a choice that was made tens of thousands of years before we were ever born? How can that be fair? With all of our other representatives, whether it be politicians or a lawyer or a football team, we get to pick who represents us. We at least get a vote in it. We didn't get any vote with Adam. We didn't get any choice. We didn't get to pick him. So how is it fair to hold us responsible for his choice to sin? To that, I would give you four answers, four things to answer the question of unfairness. First, none of this is God's fault. None of this is God's fault. God gave nothing but grace to Adam. Nothing but grace. Grace everywhere that Adam looked, even grace in the test. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but why did God put a forbidden tree in the middle of the garden? Seems like a weird thing to do if you don't want somebody to eat from it. Why did God do that? Well, because Adam could not be a man without a test. We as human beings, we're the pinnacle of creation. What does that mean? We're created in the image of God to make godly choices. That's what it means to reflect God's glory. You do what God does. Well, if you don't have a test, if you don't have any choice that you can make, then there's nothing to distinguish you from a dog or a cow. The only way for you to be human is to make godly choices. So God in grace gives Adam a choice. Here you go, Adam. You get to be like me. The highest privilege in all of creation, I give you this grace And yet Adam chose to sin. So the first response is it's not God's fault. He gave nothing but grace. Second response to that charge of unfairness. That is a very modern charge. We make that charge of unfairness because we fail to appreciate that sin is and will always be communal rather than individual. It's interesting, in the last few hundred years of, of Western society, uh, we've, we've been so ingrained with this exaltation of individuality. I stand on my own choices. I stand on my own two feet. My good choices or bad choices affect only me. That's modern, that's American, that's not biblical. Till a few hundred years ago, no one had that opinion. 
Everyone understood life, society, meaning as found in community. My choices affect all of you. Your choices affect me. We are tied together in relationships such that none of us can be removed. Sin is always communal. Look back at the Bible. Everyone who chooses to either obey God or disobey God brings major catastrophic consequences in the lives of the people they're connected to, especially the people they represent. If it's a guy who's the head of a household and he chooses to sin, everyone in his family suffers. There's this incredibly depressing incident that happens in the book of Joshua. A guy named Achan chooses to sin. He he does this despicable thing, just himself, just alone, and yet what does God do? God rounds him up and brings his people, and they stone not just Achan, but all of his sons and daughters. His entire family is put to death because of his sin, because sin is communal. It's never individual. It affects everyone we care about and everyone we're connected to. So we're objecting because we don't understand the nature of life. It's not individualistic. It's communal. We're tied inextricably together. Third answer to the question of fairness. Our sin proves it's fair. Every time we choose to sin, we prove we agree with Adam. That's especially true for believers. Because for believers empowered by the Holy Spirit, we actually have the power in us through the Spirit not to sin. We don't have to choose to sin. And yet every time I choose to sin, I am proving that I agree with Adam. I am proving that I am a good son of Adam. I'm proving that if I were in his shoes, I would have done exactly the same thing. Every time we as the people of God choose to sin, we're proving it is absolutely fair that we are charged with his decision. Fourth and final answer to the question of fairness. If Adam cannot represent the human race in death, then Christ can't represent the human race in life. And that presents us with the next section of Paul's argument, the next representative of the human race. The bad news is that all of humanity is born by default as part of Adam's lineage. He is our representative by default, by birth. The good news is you can be delivered from the lineage of Adam. There is another representative. You can become part of his family. He can represent you instead. That's the great news. That is Christ. Jesus is the new Adam, the second Adam, the new representative for humanity. That's what Paul looks at next. Look with me, starting in verse 15. Paul says, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of God by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who received the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, and here's the best part of the whole passage, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what Paul is saying. Jesus faced exactly the same test that Adam did, exactly the same test. Will you obey God the Father or not? 
And Jesus' test was not easy. Remember him in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed. He was sweating drops of blood over the stress and anxiety of obeying God the Father. The thought of going to the cross was so painful to him. Do you remember what he prayed? He prayed, Father, if there is any way, please let this cup of suffering pass from me. And then his last words, great words, last words of that prayer, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus chose to obey. Jesus passed his test. He went to the cross in obedience to God the Father. And as a result, Jesus received life, resurrection life from God the Father. In resurrection, Jesus was exalted to a place of honor and authority. And here's the great news. Just as death comes to everyone who is represented by Adam, so life comes to everyone who is represented by Jesus. The consequences of Adam's sin go to everyone he represents. The consequences of Jesus' obedience go to everyone he represents. Jesus offers that as a free gift, a free gift of life to everyone connected to him. Everyone who is part of his lineage experiences his life, his grace as a free gift. And here's the great thing about that gift. The gift of Jesus always trumps the debt of Adam. That's the great thing. Of these two representatives, one is infinitely stronger. One is infinitely better. That is Jesus, the second Adam, the new Adam. His gift of grace always infinitely trumps the debt of sin and death that Adam has put upon the human race. That's Paul's point in that great line in verse 20, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul's point is no matter how badly you sin in life, no matter how badly you screw up, you will never exhaust the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Literally in Greek it reads, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. Grace flooded over the top of sin. Grace flooded over the top of death. It's like a man who is thirsty, stumbling upon Niagara Falls. And he begins to drink, and he finds that no matter how much he drinks, he can't get one iota closer to exhausting the flow of water going over Niagara Falls. And no matter how often he returns thirsty to Niagara Falls, he still can't reduce it. That's God's grace. No matter how much you sin, no matter how much you come to God for forgiveness, you will never get anywhere close to exhausting the grace that superabounds to you. Superabounding grace in life, you will live forever with God. Superabounding grace in justification, despite your guilt, despite the condemnation you deserve, you are freely and decisively and eternally justified through the grace of Christ. Christ's grace superabounds to everyone who is in his lineage. So, the most important question How do you leave behind the lineage of Adam that you were born in and enter into the lineage of Christ? You do it through faith. You must receive it. We are part of Adam's family by default. It's involuntary. It happens the moment you're born. We enter into Jesus's family by a choice. It's not involuntary. God does not foist Jesus upon anyone. We must receive the gift of Christ through faith. You have to believe that Jesus really did die for your sins and rise from the dead. You have to receive him as your savior. Trust that he has paid the price of your sin. The moment that you do that, you leave behind the lineage of Adam and enter into the lineage of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about how to apply this. First and foremost, if you're here this morning, I want to ask you, Have you received that gift? Have you chosen to believe that Jesus really did die for your sins and rise from the dead? That is the most important thing you will ever do. There are only two classifications of humanity. Those who are justified, those who are condemned. You are in one of those two based on who you are represented by. Are you represented by Christ through faith? 
If not, let this be the morning of faith. Let this be the morning that you finally believe that Jesus really did die for your sins and rise from the dead to give you life. Now, for those of us who have believed that message, I want to give you a couple things to think about. This passage is, is really theological. It's really complex. We covered total depravity this morning. A lot of really deep things here. Uh, the danger is that we would get so caught up in the theology that we would miss the practical application. I want to give you two things to think about, concrete things. First of all, as you study this passage as a believer, the first thing that can come to your mind is compassion. Compassion for those who don't yet know Jesus. I don't know about you, but I was raised in a Christian home. I was taught Christian values throughout my childhood. And then I went off to public school. And in junior high and high school, so often I was shocked at the meanness of the people around me, at their selfishness, their pride, their immorality. It shocked me. It made me angry. But as I've matured in life and studied the Bible and studied passages like this, now when people do shocking things, it doesn't make me angry anymore. It makes me compassionate. I feel pity towards them. Why are they doing these horrible things? Because they can't help themselves. They sin because they're sinners. They do horrible things because they are still in Adam. They can't help themselves. We should be overwhelmed with compassion for the people in this world. Not hatred towards them, not violence towards them, but compassion, mercy, pity. We should have compassion that that wells up within us and moves us to share the gospel with them. The one thing that can transfer them out of the family and the curse of Adam and into the lineage of Jesus Christ and the life that he provides. So this passage should fill within us a compassion for the lost. And second, it should fill us with gratitude. Gratitude. You are not saved because of anything you've done. You are not part of the justified, part of the lineage of Christ by any good works you have ever done. You are there because of Jesus. You are there because God has placed you in the family of Jesus out of grace, purely grace. This passage should fill us with an incredible sense of gratitude. And that's what I'd ask you to reflect upon. As the men come forward, you guys can come forward. We're gonna pass the elements. The band is gonna play. Uh, You can worship with the band or you can just bow your head and spend this time going before the Lord in thanksgiving. Thanking him that at the cost of the life of his own son, He has set you free from the lineage of Adam. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took the bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If you'll pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your Son. We thank you that Jesus willingly gave his life on our behalf. Thank you that he entered the human race, that he took on flesh, that he willingly experienced the limitations, the pain, and the suffering that we all face, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And thank you that then, in the ultimate act of love and humility, he willingly went to the cross on our behalf. Thank you for that, Heavenly Father. 
And thank you, Lord, that the benefits of Christ's obedience come to us, that we can share in his lineage, that we can share in his life and grace and power. Thank you, Father. Thank you for all that is ours through Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that today and throughout this week we might be people who are truly grateful, that we would be continually turning to you in thanksgiving. to to celebrate and to rejoice in what you have done for us and in us through Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that in that gratitude you would grow in us hearts of compassion for the lost. Please, Lord, when the people of this world do things that we do not like, that things that frustrate us, things that hurt us, please, Lord, help us not to respond in anger and hate, but help us to respond in compassion and mercy. Help us, Lord, to share the love of Christ in word and deed, recognizing that that's their only hope. They sin because they're sinners. They desperately need redemption. Please, Father, help us to be people of gratefulness and of compassion. We pray that we would be your lights, your witnesses, your feet and hands to this world. In the name of your precious Son, we pray. Amen. Right, God bless you guys this week.